it's um, some 30 years since I first met um, Martha Nussbaum. It was, I think, in Oxford. It could have been in Princeton. But what brought us together on that occasion was our common interest in Greek philosophy and literature. That was 30 years ago. 30 years since then, that's just who I am still. I'm still um, Greek philosophy and literature. The difference between us is that while uh, Professor Nussbaum continues to work uh, a great deal in those fields, she's expanded her range of concerns and expertise to the point where she's become the author and spokesperson for a quite remarkable blend of philosophical, literary, social, political, educational, and legal contributions. Um, the names of some of our uh, former uh, Forster lecturers, of course, are very familiar, uh, some less familiar, but I'm sure no one came into this room today without knowing the name of um, Martha Nussbaum. At a time when public intellectuals are a rare commodity, especially ones of authentic ability and substance, Martha Nussbaum is a signal exception. <clears throat> Her publishing productivity and versatility are legendary. In the last decade alone, she's produced a large volume virtually every year, with books as different in their scope as Upheavals of Thought, which is cutting-edge theory on the cognitive nature of the emotions, Women and Human Development, which reflects her social work and experience in India, her latest book, if I have my facts right, will be Liberty of Conscience, The Attack on America's Tradition of Religious Equality. I think we're going to get a sample of this work in today's lecture with its reference to Roger Williams, the 17th century London clergyman who became the founder of Providence, Rhode Island. Now, Martha's never let up on her original interests in Greek philosophy and literature, as I said, and philosophy in general. In fact, these interests, and I think especially her devotion to Aristotle, on whom she published her first book, have significantly helped to shape her approach to such gigantic modern issues as affirmative action, feminism, gay rights, third world economics, and international justice. After all, Aristotelian ethics, psychology, and literary theory presuppose the notion that human beings are emotional as well as rational animals. Rational, of course, features in Aristotle's classic definition of the human being, but it's central to Aristotle's ethical view that we are emotional animals too. The importance of tempering reason with feeling or tempering feeling with reason seem to me constant and consistent themes in Martha's work and in the urgency of her voice, whatever her theme or concern. Many of us in this room are instructors in the humanities. A stock justification for our calling is that study of great literature or art or philosophy is supposed to enlarge the mind, broaden the cultural perspective, and enhance critical thinking. As members of a public university, moreover, we are beneficiaries of tax dollars. Fewer, no doubt, than we would like, but a sizable number of dollars. 
And that benefaction reflects the belief that what we do as educators is for the public good. Yet while Berkeley and many other American universities regularly reap top ranks in surveys, the role of the intellectual as an influential public voice in this land, never great, I think, but at present threatens to become quite silent, or at least unheeded. Fortunately, that will not happen under the watch of Martha Nussbaum. She is a tireless speaker and writer on behalf of what she deems to be the public good, as measured by concepts of reason, humanity, and compassion. Now, to play that role is not only quite rare, it also calls for unusual eloquence and persuasion and for great energy and courage. By taking on the huge issues that she does, Professor Nussbaum risks controversy and criticism, and she's had her share of controversy and criticism, especially from those of us who stay within the comfort zones of our own disciplines and ivory towers. Long may you continue, Martha, your dedicated activism and your life of what Aristotle calls practical rationality. As Chicago's first, uh, uh, sorry, as Chicago's Ernst Freund Distinguished Service Professor of Law and Ethics, we are indeed honored to have you in Berkeley as our 2006-07 Forster Lecturer. We are eager to hear you speak on equal liberty of conscience, Roger Williams, and the roots of a constitutional tradition. So I have much pleasure in welcoming Martha Nussbaum to the podium. Martha. Well, thank you very much, Tony. I really appreciate that. Uh, it's, it's really great to be here. Uh, the book that Tony mentioned is a book in progress, of which you'll get a little sample. Uh, what I wanted to do, uh, seeing the climate of polarization and, and uh, animosity over issues of the relationship between religion and the public uh, good, uh, was to try to write something that I, I think, by tracing some of the philosophical and historical foundations of the constitutional tradition, we, we may be able to to promote some, some kind of a stable consensus. So at any rate, that's the aim of the book as a whole, and I'd be very glad to have questions about how some of the things I'll say here about the early tradition uh, shed light on contemporary issues like the Ten Commandments and the Pledge of Allegiance and so forth. Okay, two quotations to begin with. The first is from Roger Williams's major book, The Bloody Tenant of Persecution, 1644, Sixthly, it is the will and command of God that since the coming of his son, the Lord Jesus, a permission of the most paganish, Jewish, Turkish, or anti-Christian consciences and worships be granted to all men in all nations and countries. And the second is a letter that Roger Williams wrote to the governors of Massachusetts and Connecticut who did not uh, extend liberty of conscience to all those other groups. Yourselves pretend liberty of conscience, but alas, it is but self, the great God self, only to yourselves. 
Life was tough for the settlers of 17th century New England. They responded to hardship by trying to gain God's favor for their new colony, which required, as they saw it, establishing and sternly enforcing a religious orthodoxy. By punishing or banishing those who disobeyed in word or deed, they hoped to cast impurity from their common life. The idea that a good community would be one that allowed all people to seek God in their own way took root only gradually and with great struggle. This lecture traces that struggle, focusing on the life and ideas of one of the century's great apostles of religious liberty and fairness, Roger Williams, founder of the colony of Rhode Island and seminal philosophical writer about the persecuted conscience. American writings about religious liberty were in conversation with similar work in Britain, and there are striking similarities between the arguments used in Williams's two most influential books, published in 1644 and 1652, and those used more famously and later by John Locke. Nonetheless, the American tradition has some distinctive features that ultimately proved valuable in forging our constitutional heritage. The American tradition I want to recover contains, first, an emphasis on the tremendous importance of a mutually respectful civil peace among people who differ in conscientious commitment. The vulnerability of all Americans in the perilous new world they had chosen led to a recognition which came much slower in Europe, if indeed it has come at all, that people with different views of life's ultimate meaning and purpose really need to learn to live together on terms of equal respect if they were to survive at all. Roger Williams dramatizes this idea from the start by making his work a dialogue between two friends called Truth and Peace, in which Truth acknowledges the deep importance of reaching accommodation with people whom one believes to be in error. The second distinctive feature of the American tradition is a personal and highly emotional sense of the precariousness and the vulnerability of each individual person's conscience, that seat of imagination, emotion, thought, and moral choice through which each person seeks for meaning in his or her own way. The experience of both solitude and space that the wild world conveyed to its new inhabitants brought with it a picture of human life as a risky and lonely quest. This idea, in turn, led to the thought that this search, this striving of conscience, is what is most precious about the journey of human life, and that each person, Protestant, Catholic, Jew, Muslim, or pagan, must be permitted to conduct it in his or her own way, without interference either from the state or from orthodox religion. To impose an orthodoxy upon the conscience is nothing less than what Williams, in a memorable and repeated image, calls soul rape. Third, and perhaps most important for the overall argument I'm trying to make in this book, Williams grounds his views of church and state in an idea of fairness and impartiality, of equal respect for conscience. In my larger project, I argue that this idea links the free exercise clause to the establishment clause and provides very good guidance as we confront uh, difficult contemporary issues. So first, section one, the wild and howling land. Life in New England was fragile and exposed. If people did not die on the voyage to the new land, they knew well that they might die shortly in it, whether from starvation, disease, or cold, or at the hands of the native inhabitants, whose claims to the land they utterly ignored. On the dubious authority of a land claim made by James I, 
They grasped for security, alleging that the land was their own because Englishmen first discovered it, something that Roger Williams called, quote, a solemn public lie, end quote. He added the sarcastic comment, quote, Christian kings, so-called, are invested with right by virtue of their Christianity to take and give away the lands and countries of other men, end quote. The world around them really was alarming. The wind, the seas, the forests, the deep snows, all of this was strange to people accustomed to life in England, whether urban or rural. Quote, but oh, poor dust and ashes, Roger Williams wrote of himself and his fellows, like stones once rolling down the Alps, like the Indian canoes or English boats loose and adrift. Where stop we until infinite mercy stop us? In his remarkable book, Key to the Languages of America, a study of the Indian tribes, their life and languages, written during a sea voyage back to England in 1643, Williams ponders the Indians' ability to coexist with impermanence and constant vulnerability in what he calls this wild and howling land. Astonishingly, the Indians don't mind picking up and moving on to a new place whenever climate or insects or sheer inclination moves them. Quote, I once in travel lodged at a house at which in my return I hoped to have lodged again there the next night, but the house was gone in the interim and I was glad to lodge under a tree, end quote. This sense of life as transient as requiring reinvention at each moment deeply shaped the new Americans' culture and ultimately their religious sensibilities. The Indians may have made their peace with transience. The Puritans, used to a very different sort of life, resisted. To keep the world at bay, they found it prudent to enforce orthodoxy of religious belief, expression, and practice, suppressing dissent. John Cotton, 1595 to 1652, pastor of the First Church of Boston, one of Massachusetts's most influential religious leaders and Roger Williams's lifelong intellectual adversary, wrote copiously in defense of religious persecution, arguing that it was necessary for civil order. It was also God's will, he said, in order to separate the diseased element of society from the healthy element as he and Williams wrangled endlessly about whether people diverse in faith and way of life could co coexist peacefully in civil society, Cotton maintained again and again that the wholesome parts of a community cannot but be corrupted by the presence of heretics and dissidents unless those people are brought to judgment, punished, and if they don't repent, banished. Sometimes the desire to keep sin at bay did not content itself with persecution and banishment, which trials, as you all know, were common in both Massachusetts and Connecticut. And John Demos's research shows that the most common so-called victim of the witches was not actually the famous teenage girls, but instead, much more commonly, a young adult male on the verge of responsible adulthood. Demos concludes that heightened vulnerability and uncertainty about whether one would be able to make a life at all led to the desire to demonize others. Such reactions to insecurity are sadly familiar throughout America's history. Arthur Miller was quite right to connect the witch trials to witch hunting of leftists in the McCarthy era. Today, we're told by our leaders that we're living in another time of heightened vulnerability, a time uh, a couple nights ago, uh, we were told that uh, civilization itself is actually at stake. 
In this situation, it's all too easy to let the longing for homogeneity and control ride roughshod over the spirit of fairness and respect, projecting the causes of instability onto um, other people, grabbing hold of Cotton's seductive metaphor of a stain or taint in our midst that must be removed if we are to resist uh, destruction. There are, however, other ways of living in difficult times. What makes Roger Williams of particular interest is not just the quality of his philosophical work, which is high. It is also the way in which he offers an alternative to the paranoid response to uncertainty, urging on his readers attitudes of fairness, reasonableness, and civility, words which recur with obsessive frequency throughout the two philosophical dialogues, totaling about some 1,000 pages, which uh, constitute his major works. Section two, to ship myself all alone in a poor canoe, Williams's Rhode Island. Williams is typically remembered as a religious and political leader rather than a thinker. If his ideas are recalled at all, he's identified with one uncharacteristic phrase he used once in a letter, namely the phrase, the wall of separation between church and state rather than for the careful and extensive arguments about the evils of persecution, the primacy of the individual conscience, and the jurisdictions proper to the civil and the religious spheres. His ideas are rarely set out with care, and the relationship of those ideas to those of more famous 17th century philosophers, Locke in particular, is rarely appreciated, although in fact his important writings of the 1640s anticipate Locke's letter concerning toleration, 1689, in every major point. But since Williams was a leader, as well as a thinker, and since his work needs to be assessed in the context of his life and career, uh, we first should recount his story. Williams was born in England, probably in 1603, to a prosperous merchant family. He grew up in London near the Smithfield Plain, where religious dissenters were sometimes burnt at the stake. As a young man, he attracted the attention of the distinguished lawyer, who I should say also was steeped in stoic natural law arguments, so this is the intellectual background, Sir Edward Cook, Chief Justice of the King's Bench. Cook arranged for the young man's education at Sutton's Hospital, the future Charterhouse School, and then at Pembroke Hall and Cambridge University, where Williams received his A.B. in 1627, after a classical education that focused on natural law theories uh, deriving from ancient Greek and Roman Stoicism, which suffused Cook's work and which were much in vogue at the time. Williams quickly impressed by his remarkable flair for languages, mastering Latin, Greek, Hebrew, French, and Dutch. In this way, he made the friendship of John Milton. He taught Milton Dutch in exchange for receiving Hebrew lessons. On graduation, Williams took orders in the Church of England and in 1629 accepted the post of chaplain at Oates in Essex, the manor house of Sir William Masham, grandfather of the Sir Francis Masham, who was Locke's host at Oates in the 1690s. In 1630, a leading Puritan reformer was placed in the pillory. One of his ears was cut off, one side of his nose was split, and he was branded on the face with the letters SS for sower of sedition. Later, the other side of his nose was split, and his other ear was cut off. For good measure, the man was then imprisoned for the rest of his life. Williams, who witnessed these events and who was already very critical of the Anglican orthodoxy, decided that he could not live the religious life he wanted in England. He set sail for Massachusetts. 
At first, Williams was warmly welcomed by the leaders of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, although in Boston, his views about the individual conscience were found too radical. He was welcomed by the congregation at Salem. He expressed his religious ideas freely. At the same time, he published a pamphlet attacking the colonists' claims to the Indians' property. The officials of Massachusetts Bay called him into court, but took no action when Williams agreed to withdraw the pamphlet from circulation. He continued, however, to teach the falsity of the colonists' property claim. He also urged resistance to a proposed oath of loyalty to be taken by all colonists. During this period, Williams spent some peaceful months at Plymouth, where he pursued his study of Indian life and languages. By 1635 to 6, authorities saw that Williams was bent on continuing his divisive teaching. They ordered him to be arrested. Tipped off in advance, he fled. Looking back on the incident from Providence in 1670, he describes it this way. I was unkindly and unchristianly, as I believe, driven from my house and land and my wife and children in the midst of New England winter now about 35 years past. I steered my course from Salem, though in winter snow, which I feel yet, until these parts where I may say, as Jacob, Peniel, that is, I have seen the face of God. So begins the story of Rhode Island. In keeping with his sense of divine deliverance, Williams named the new colony Providence. A key part of the life of that new settlement was respectful friendship with the Indians. Williams had always treated them as human beings, not beasts or devils. He respected their dignity. When the great Narragansett chief Canonicus, who spoke no English, broke a stick ten times to demonstrate ten instances of broken English promises, Williams understood his meaning and took his part. When the colonists objected that the Indians couldn't own land because they were nomadic, Williams described their regular seasonal hunting practices, arguing that these practices were sufficient to establish property claims, a legal argument that strikingly anticipates very recent litigation over Aboriginal land in Australia. Linguist that he was, he reports having at this period, quote, a constant zealous desire to dive into the native's language. And he learned several of the languages by actually living with the Indians for long periods of time. God was pleased, he says, to give me a painful, patient spirit to lodge with them in their smoky holes to gain their tongues, etc. When Williams arrived as a refugee then, his dealings with the Indians had long prepared the way for a fruitful relationship. Chiefs Massasoit and Canonicus welcomed him like an old friend because he had befriended them before he needed them and had given them lots of gifts for many years. He was already known as a good public debater in the native languages and therefore, quote, held with them as a sachem, end quote. One of the key provisions of the Charter of Rhode Island was, quote, it shall not be lawful to or for the rest of the colonies to invade or molest the native Indians, end quote. A provision that Williams particularly sought from the king and when granted applauded, noting that hostility to the Indians, quote, hath hitherto been practiced to our continual and great grievance and disturbance, end quote. Throughout his life, Williams continued these friendships as he wrote to the governor of Massachusetts Bay, explaining why he refused to return to Massachusetts, quote, I feel, I feel safer down here among the Christian savages along Narragansett Bay than I do among the savage Christians of Massachusetts Bay. 
And that didn't mean that they had been converted. He never tried to convert the Indians. He just meant that their behavior exemplified the Christian spirit more truly than the behavior of the people in Massachusetts. He's very fond of noting examples of Indian decency and honesty and contrasting this behavior with that of the uh, other uh, neighbors in Massachusetts and Connecticut. Williams's experience of finding integrity, dignity, and goodness outside the parameters of orthodoxy surely shaped his evolving views of conscience, but there was al- always already something antinomian about Williams, something that led him to those friendships in the first place, a respectful curiosity about the varieties of humanity that's the paradigm of something that um, played a, a good role in the history of the American colonies as a nation of strangers and immigrants. Williams immediately provided for religious liberty in the new colony. The majority would make policy, but, quote, only in civil things, end quote. Broad liberty of conscience was officially guaranteed. Rhode Island rapidly became a haven for people who were in trouble in other places. Other settlements were founded. Baptists, Quakers, and other dissidents joined the Puritan dissenters. In 1658, 15 Portuguese Jewish families arrived in Newport. Although the Turo Synagogue, America's oldest surviving Jewish synagogue and its first Sephardic synagogue, was not dedicated until 1763, Jews enjoyed the same religious liberty granted to others, a fact that's rather astonishing when we note that Jews in Britain gained full civil rights only in 1858. In 1643, William set sail for England to secure a formal charter for the new colony. During the voyage, he wrote his book about the Indian languages. While in England, he wrote and published The Bloody Tenant of Persecution. A democratic charter was obtained, and the colony proclaimed liberty of conscience. In 1652, Rhode Island passed the first law in North America making slavery illegal. By this time, Williams had been won over by the Baptists' arguments in favor of adult baptism. He was rebaptized in 1639, and from that time on, he referred to himself simply as a seeker. Meanwhile, <clears throat> John Cotton's angry reply to the Bloody Tenant, published in 1647, led Williams to produce another work, about 100 pages longer than the first one, refuting all of Cotton's arguments. Published in 1652 in London during another of Williams's visits to England, it bears the unwieldy title, The Bloody Tenant Yet More Bloody by Mr. Cotton's Endeavor to Wash It White in the Blood of the Lamb, of whose precious blood spilt in the blood of his servants, and of the blood of millions spilt in former and later wars for conscience' sake, that most bloody tenant of persecution for cause of conscience, upon a second trial, is found now more apparent and more notoriously guilty. You see why philosophers don't uh, really can't cope with this man. He's a very, very prolix writer. The civil wars and the restoration made it necessary to renegotiate the charter. Williams again went to England and found in Charles II a ready ally for his experiment in religious liberty. Williams notes that the Barbados already permitted religious liberty by omission and policy rather than by explicit royal guarantee. Quote, but our grant is crowned with the king's extraordinary favor to this colony in which his majesty declared himself that he would experiment whether civil government could consist with such liberty of conscience. 
With amusement, he describes the shocked reaction of the king's ministers when they read the unorthodox document. Quote, but fearing the lion's roaring, they couched against their wills in obedience to his majesty's pleasure, end quote. The charter was shocking indeed, not only in its odd provision regarding the Indians, but above all in its clause regarding religious liberty, which goes like this. No person within the said colony at any time hereafter shall be anywise molested, punished, disquieted, or called in question for any differences in opinion in matters of religion, and he do not actually disturb the civil peace of said colony, but that all and every person and persons may from time to time and at all times hereafter freely and fully have and enjoy his and their own judgments and consciences in matters of religious concernments throughout the tract of land hereafter mentioned, they behaving themselves peaceably and quietly and not using this liberty to licentiousness or profaneness nor to the civil injury or outward disturbance of others. Any law, statute, or clause therein contained or to be contained, usage or custom of this realm, to the contrary hereof, in any wise notwithstanding. Okay, what does this clause protect? Belief and the expression of opinion in religious matters, clearly. But Williams, throughout his philosophical writings, was very careful to insist that acts of worship should also enjoy protection. Indeed, in his writings, we rarely encounter the word belief without the word worship or practice. In the passage I just read at the beginning of the talk, taken from the introduction to the bloody tenant, consciences and worships are all permitted. Elsewhere, he uses phrases such as, for either professing doctrine or practicing worship, doctrine or practice, etc., etc. It's a bit unfortunate that the charter is less precise, but we can understand the latitude of its protection from the other direction as stopping where civil disturbance and violation of the rights of others begins. Williams was no John Stuart Mill. He thought that the business of civil government included not only protection of individuals from harm to their rights by others, but also the maintenance of public order and morality. Thus, like virtually everyone at this time, he favored laws against adultery and other so-called morals offenses. Not, however, on religious grounds. His conception of public morality, as we'll see later, keeps it quite distinct from religious norms and justifications. The final provision in the clause is especially interesting. The charter guarantees liberty of religious belief and practice even when a law or custom already on the books forbids it. In other words, if the law says you have to swear an oath before God to hold public office, this law is nullified by the charter. Moreover, it appears that the charter nullifies the applicability of laws to individuals whenever such laws threaten their religious liberty. If a law says that people have to testify in court on a Saturday and your religion forbids this, then that law is non-applicable in your case. In other words, it would appear that Williams is forging the legal concept of accommodation, which soon became very widely accepted in the colonies. Laws of general applicability have force only up to the point where they threaten religious liberty, just so long as public order and safety are not at stake. This was not mere talk. Williams was notoriously skeptical about Sunday as the chosen day for no work. He had considerable sympathy with the theological arguments of the Seventh-day Baptists. 
More generally, he saw the burden that comes with imposing a majority practice on everyone. Rhode Island had no Sunday law during his lifetime. Section 3, this conscience is found in all mankind, William's defense of religious liberty. Behind this impressive political achievement is a body of thought as rich on these issues as that of Locke, and considerably more perceptive concerning the psychology of both persecutor and victim. At its heart is an idea or image on which Williams focused with deep emotion and obsessional zeal, the idea of the preciousness and dignity of the individual human conscience. Williams defines conscience as holy light and as, quote, a persuasion fixed in the mind and heart of a man which enforceth him to judge and to do so and so with respect to God, his worship, etc. It is, he says, quote, indeed the man, end quote. Williams has his own very intense religious beliefs, and these beliefs entail that most people around him are in error. Error, however, does not mean that they do not have the precious faculty of conscience. This conscience, he writes, is found in all mankind, in Jews, Turks, Papists, Protestants, pagans, etc., end quote. And even though one thing that's precious about the conscience is its ability ultimately to find the truth, that's not what Williams emphasizes. What he reveres is the committed search, the sincere quest for meaning. Quote, I commend that man, whether Jew or Turk or Papist or whoever, that steers no otherwise than his conscience dares. For neighbor, you shall find it rare to meet with men of conscience, end quote. One can't help thinking of Williams's respect for his Indian friends when one reads passages like this. Furthermore, since he says that men of conscience are rare, but the conscience itself is in everyone, he clearly holds that the precious faculty of conscience exists even in less virtuous people, and that all deserve basic human respect. So, everyone has inside him or herself something infinitely precious, something that demands respect from us all, and something in regard to which we are all basically equal. Williams now argues that this precious something needs space to unfold itself, to pursue its own way. To respect human beings is therefore to accord them that sort of space, and to accord it to each and every one of them. He expresses indignation that someone, quote, that speaks so tenderly for his own hath yet so little respect, mercy, or pity to the like conscientious persuasions of other men. Are the thousands of millions of millions of consciences at home and abroad fuel only for a prison, for a whip, for a stake, for a gallows? Are no consciences to breathe the air but such as suit and sample his, end quote, These images are revealing. They tell us that Williams thinks of consciences as delicate, vulnerable, living things, things that need to breathe the air and not to be imprisoned. There are so many of them in prison all over the world. But all alike should have breathing space. Williams has the very keenest sensitivity to any damage to this precious thing, comparing persecution repeatedly to spiritual and soul rape. And it is soul rape, he says, when any person is limited with respect to either belief or practice, so long as he is not harming others or violating other civil laws duly constituted. Quote, I acknowledge that to molest any person, Jew or Gentile, for either professing doctrine or practicing worship, merely religious or spiritual, it is to persecute him. 
And such a person, whatever his doctrine or practice be true or false, suffereth persecution for conscience. This persecution is therefore a terrible error. Williams explicitly says that it is a worse thing than being a heretic. Indeed, he goes on, persecution is a doctrine, quote, which no uncleanness, no adultery, incest, sodomy, or bestiality can equal. This ravishing and forcing explicitly or implicitly the very souls and consciences of all the nations and inhabitants of the world, end quote. Williams doesn't believe that the offenses to which he compares persecution are trivial. Indeed, he's rather inclined to favor the death penalty for adultery. So we can see how strong his objection to persecution is, if it's worse than these things. Most rulers in all ages, he concludes, after very copious historical surveys, have practiced violence to the souls of men. Conscience, then, is not invulnerable to worldly conditions. It can be imprisoned, that is, prevented from carrying out its search in action, and it can even be raped, that is, damaged or defiled. One of Williams's reasons for abhorring persecution is instrumental. If you force someone, it hardens their opposition, thus preventing their voluntary conversion, hence their salvation. He makes this point repeatedly in ad hominem argument with John Cotton, and it was a common Protestant argument in the period, one that Locke later makes central to his own case for toleration. But Williams makes much less of this argument than does Locke, and one can't really read Williams's text and doubt that Williams also thinks damage to conscience an intrinsic wrong, a desecration of what is most precious about a human life. Moreover, he insists repeatedly that this precious something is worthy of equal respect and is equally in us all. Therefore, it's a heinous wrong to give it freedom for some and to deny the same freedom to others. Again and again, he hammers home the charge of partiality and unfairness. Magistrates, he says, give liberty with a partial hand and an unequal balance. How, quote, will this appear to be equal in the very eye of common peace and righteousness? His own marginal summaries of his argument, particularly in the later book, keep recurring to this theme, saying things like unchristian partiality, gross partiality to private interests, or gross partiality, the bloody doctrine of persecution. Williams has a keen nose for special pleading and unfairness, and he sees it everywhere restrictions on religious liberty are found. He suggests that the error of the persecutor is a kind of anxiety-ridden greed, which is hypocritically disguised as virtue. Each person, anxious and insecure, aims to carve out special protections and privileges for himself by attacking in others what he most values in his own life. In his letter to the governors of Massachusetts and Connecticut, which I read earlier, he indicts them for a hypocritical and unfair set of principles, for worshiping, in effect, only the great God self. If persecution is the worst of errors, liberty of conscience is, as Williams repeatedly states, a most precious and invaluable jewel. The proponent of liberty, he goes on, does not indulge in special pleading. Even though he believes that he's right, he doesn't puff himself up, for he knows how difficult his quest is. He remembers God's mercy to him, and he has mercy on those whom he believes to be in error. He also has an even-handed, fair-minded spirit of love and civility to all men, a civility that includes respect for their freedom. 
In one remarkable passage, Williams writes that persecution is not only, quote, to take the being of Christianity out of the world, but to take away all civility and the world out of the world, and to lay all upon heaps of confusion, end quote. What does he mean by saying that persecution takes the world out of the world? I think he's expressing the view that the spirit of love and gentleness combined with the spirit of fair play, are at the heart of our worldly lives with one another. Take these things away, and you despoil the world itself. You make it nothing but a heap of confusion. Williams is an emotional writer. His sense of his own religion is deeply subjective and passionate. Nonetheless, it's not implausible to compare his core ideas to those that will animate the philosophy of Kant a century later. I should add that both owe a debt to the Stoics, which has got to be a topic for another time. At the heart of the thought of both men are two ideas, the duty to respect humanity as an end wherever we find it, and the duty to be fair, not to make an exception for one's own case. Kant's categorical imperative asks each person to test the principle of his or her conduct by asking whether it could, without contradiction, be made a universal law for all human beings. This test will show us whether we've been selfishly partial to our own case. Williams's critique of the leaders of Massachusetts and Connecticut is that their ideas can't pass Kant's test. They love freedom, but only for themselves. They could not will persecution as a universal law, and their selfishness prevents them from willing freedom of conscience, which could pass the Kantian test as a universal law. Kant's second test is, of course, the formula of humanity, asking us to test our principle by seeing whether it treats humanity as an end. We are to ask whether we're really showing respect to the dignity of human beings or whether we're just using them as objects in the pursuit of our own selfish ends. This complaint, too, is a constant theme in Williams's writing. The conscience is precious, but people use other people's consciences to serve their own anxious and greedy ends. Kant's third way of testing principles invokes the idea of autonomy. We're to ask ourselves whether we can view our principle as a law that we could give to ourselves. There's no precise echo of this part of Kant in Williams, but his insistence on the deeply personal quest of the individual conscience and the priceless value of freedom in this quest is in great sympathy with Kant's way of thinking. For both the source of moral principles and of all moral worth is ultimately in our own freedom, and that freedom must be respected. For both doing the right thing because of obedience to a law imposed from outside has no moral worth at all. Finally, Kant speaks of good principles as constituting a realm of ends, a virtual society of free beings who each respect one another as equals. I believe that this idea is very much what Williams is after when he says that persecution takes the world out of the world. It destroys the basis of human fellowship in respect, freedom, and civility. Williams, then, lies at the beginning of a distinctive tradition of thought about religious fairness that resonates to the present day in John Rawls's distinguished work on liberty and equal respect. Compared to both Kant and Rawls, Williams has an extra measure of psychological insight, helping us see why persecution is so attractive and what emotional attitudes might be required to resist it. Section 4, A Model of Church and Civil Power. 
If Williams had offered only an account of conscience and its fair, impartial treatment, he would already have made a large contribution to our understanding of religious liberty. He accomplished, however, much more, developing an elaborate account of the proper jurisdictions of religious and civil authority that anticipates Locke's more famous account in every major point and that still offers helpful guidance. In this part of his work, Williams is replying to a so-called model of church and state proposed by John Cotton. Truth says to Peace, oh, what book do you have there? Peace produces Cotton's large book and reads from it at great length the claim that the church must hold high authority in the civil realm and should be superior to all civil magistrates if peace is to be preserved. The 200 pages that follow contain Williams's alternative model. According to Williams, there are two separate sets of ends and activities in human life, separate though related. Corresponding to these are two utterly different sorts of jurisdiction, two sorts of authority. Civil or state authority concerns the bodies and goods of subjects, exactly the characterization that Locke later gives. And I haven't been able to prove whether Locke knew this work. I mean, Quentin Skinner and other Locke scholars are, uh, Locke never cites what he's read, but, you know, the similarities are so great. And he was living in the same house where Williams did his early work. Uh, so, So it seems highly likely that Locke is lifting some of this from Williams. Civil authority must protect people's entitlements to property and bodily security, and it may properly use force to do so. The civil law applies to all, including members of the clergy. The foundation of civil authority lies in the people, and it is the people who are entitled democratically to choose civil magistrates. The other sphere of human life is that of the soul and its safety. Law and force have absolutely no place in this sphere, which must be governed by persuasion only. Churches and their officers have this sphere as their jurisdiction, but with the proviso that their only proper means of addressing the soul is persuasion. The two sorts of authority, civil and spiritual, can coexist peaceably together. Peace is in jeopardy only to the extent that churches overstep their boundaries and start making civil law or interfering with people's property, livelihood, and liberty. Williams now tells us that there is, of course, a way in which the civil state needs to make laws respecting religion. Namely, it has to make laws protecting it, saying, for example, quote, that no persons, papists, Jews, Turks, or Indians, be disturbed at their worship, a thing which the very Indians abhor to practice toward any. Such protective laws are not only permitted, they're extremely important, and he calls them the Magna Carta of the highest liberties, end quote. But there is, he continues, another type of law respecting religion that's very different from these protective laws, the sort of law that establishes or forbids acts of worship, says who can or cannot be a minister, and so on. To say that these should be civil laws, quote, is as far from reason as that the commandments of Paul were civil and earthly constitutions, end quote. John Cotton makes two claims that Williams must answer if he is to defend his radical position well. First, Cotton makes a claim about peace and stability. People simply can't live at peace with one another unless some religious orthodoxy is established. In response, Williams invokes both reason and experience on his side. People with false religious views, he says, may be perfectly decent and peaceable citizens. We can see this all the time. 
People do live together peacefully, so long as they respect one another's conscience space. Once again, life with the Indians provides a handy illustration. What really breaks the peace is persecution. Quote, such persons only break the kingdom's or city's peace who cry out for prisons and swords against such who cross their judgment or practice in religion. The other argument of Cotton's on which Williams focuses is an argument about competence. Cotton claims that being a good citizen and being a good civil magistrate are inseparable from having the correct religion. We simply don't want our public life to be run by sinners because they're making very important decisions, and if they're sinners, they will do so sinfully and badly. Here, Williams makes one of his most interesting and, for the time, very novel arguments. God, he says, has created different sorts of goodness in the world. There are diverse sorts of goodness corresponding to the different sorts of things that God has created. He illustrates this point at great length, talking about the goodness of artifacts, the goodness of plants, the goodness of animals, and so on. But one of the ways God created diversity in the world was to create a type of, quote, civil or moral goodness, end quote, that is, quote, commendable and beautiful, end quote, in its own right, and that is distinct from spiritual goodness. It can be there in its full form and be beautiful, even if the person is in religious error, even, quote, though godliness, which is infinitely more beautiful, be wanting, end quote. What's needed to be a good subject in a civil state is the moral sort of goodness, and it is that sort as well that we need in our civil magistrates. Later, returning to this point, he insists that the foundation of the magistrate's authority, quote, is not religious, Christian, etc., but natural, humane, and civil, end quote. For many activities in human life, a worldly foundation is sufficient. Quote, a Christian captain, Christian merchant, physician, lawyer, pilot, father, master, and so consequently magistrate, etc., is no more a captain, merchant, physician, lawyer, pilot, father, master, magistrate, etc., than a captain, merchant, etc., of any other conscience or religion, end quote. Particularly surprising, I think, is his casual mention of father as one of those roles whose duties can be faithfully and completely fulfilled independently of spiritual enlightenment. In short, for Williams, the civil state has a moral foundation, but a moral foundation need not be, and for reasons of fairness to all, must not be a religious foundation. The necessary moral virtues honesty is one to which Williams devotes special attention, can be agreed on and practiced by people from many different doctrines. To be sure, he adds, a person's religion will connect these moral virtues to religious ends, but so far as the moral sphere itself goes, orthodox and dissenter, religious and non-religious can all agree. It's not fanciful to see here an adumbration of John Rawls's idea of civil society as involving a set of what Rawls calls freestanding moral principles concerning which people from different comprehensive doctrines can join in what Rawls calls an overlapping consensus. Like Williams, Rawls stresses that political society has a moral foundation, but he holds that this is a a module that can be linked to different religious doctrines or non-religious doctrines in a variety of different ways. 
although religious people will certainly feel that their religion provides the moral principles with their highest ends or deepest sources, here again he agrees with Williams, they can nonetheless agree about the moral terrain in a way that is, for practical purposes, freestanding, that is, not requiring the acceptance of any particular religious orthodoxy for its justification. So we don't have exactly a wall of separation between people's religions and their political principles. Recall that Williams used that phrase only once and in a polemical context in a letter, not at all in his thousand pages of of major writing. We do have separation of jurisdictions between church and state, but where people are concerned, they will rightly see the morality of public life as one part of their own comprehensive doctrine, a part, nonetheless, that they can share with others without converting them to what they take to be the true religion. This idea is, I think, a much more helpful idea to think with than the bare idea of separation, which might suggest that the state doesn't have anything to do with the deep ethical matters that are central to the religions. The state needs to be built on moral principles, and it would be weird or tyrannical to ask religious people to accept the idea that moral principles are utterly separate from their own religious principles. The idea of an overlapping consensus, or to put it Williams's way, the idea of a moral and natural goodness that we can share while differing on ultimate religious ends, is an idea that helps us think about our common life together much better than the unclear and misleading idea of separation. We must respect one another's freedom and equality, the deep sources of conscience that lead us through the wilderness of life. We will only do this if we keep religious orthodoxy out of our common political life. But we can and must base that common life on ethical principles that, for many, also have a religious meaning and a religious justification. All we need to do when we join with others in a common political and moral life is to acknowledge that someone might actually have those ethical virtues in the way that is relevant for political life while not sharing our own view of life's ultimate meaning. If we once grant that, then Williams's other argument concerning fairness and impartiality will lead us to want a state that has no religious orthodoxy, that is, just in that sense, separate from religion. Concluding section, truth and peace, their meetings seldom and short. Looking back from our own time to the time before the founding, we often associate the constitutional idea of freedom of conscience and the related idea of non-establishment more with enlightenment, rationalism, and deism than with their 17th century precursors. But Williams's version of doctrines that later became part of the Enlightenment is distinctive in a number of ways, ways that continue to exert a deep influence on America's thought and life and that I think are valuable for us today. First of all, Williams speaks as a religious person. Skepticism about religion or denigration of religion is no part of his brief for religious liberty, as it is for Jefferson, who often said things about religion that seem dismissive or scoffing. Many Americans who have a hard time identifying with Jefferson's rather smug disdain for religiosity can perhaps find their own concerns well represented in Williams's spiritual quest. His arguments show that one may be a deeply committed religious person while yet believing that fairness and the worth of the individual conscience require a wide and equal religious liberty and a ban on religious establishment. Truth and peace love one another, although their meetings, as he ruefully says at the end of his second book, are seldom and short. 
Second, Williams's romantic and deeply emotional picture of the conscience as a lonely and vulnerable traveler in life's great wilderness is the source of a distinctively American set of religious attitudes that are attractive starting points from, for religious thought. America's tradition is rather different from many European traditions, much more skeptical of any kind of public orthodoxy or homogeneity. Williams's idea of conscience explains the roots of this tradition and shows why it is compelling. If we see things Williams's way, we will be strongly inclined to a delicate accommodation, even under law, of eccentric religious needs in all citizens, as well as to scrupulous fairness and constant self-criticism in our pursuit of civil peace. Truth and peace don't meet often. So often, they comment to each other, they meet up lovingly, only to be parted by the persecutor's sword, by hypocrisy and selfish partiality. But they have a surprise ally. At the end of The Bloody Tenant, a third character makes her appearance. But lo, says Peace, who's here? Truth replies, our sister Patience, whose desired company is as needful as delightful. Patience utters not a single word, but she's clearly there. The year before, in his book on Indian languages, Williams has written eloquently of the patience of the Indians, who can sit silently for ages, waiting for what they want. Quote, Every man hath his pipe of their tobacco, and a deep silence they make, and attention give to him that speaketh. To his impatient world, Williams commended that example. Now, at the close of his great dialogue, patience is represented as, in effect, an Indian, silent after the prolixity of her sisters, waiting for a time that may be very long in coming, a time of equal respect for people who differ. In that silence, at the close of so much speech, rests Williams's hope for the future. Thanks.